Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York... I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Russia is losing around 150 tanks a month in Ukraine, a pittance compared to its Second World War losses. But because tanks today are more sophisticated, making them is harder, which will pose an increasingly tough battlefield problem for Russia. And Labrador Retrievers... Their lovable, energetic, and good-natured spent 31 years as America's favorite dog breed, but they've been replaced atop the charts. By whom? Stay tuned for our discussion of the warp and woof of canine popularity. But first... On Sunday, it was announced that Credit Suisse, a Swiss bank, was being taken over by its longtime rival UBS in a merger orchestrated by the country's financial authorities. Dass sie nachhaltige Stabilität und Sicherheit für unsere Kunden, Mitarbeiterinnen und Mitarbeiter, die Finanzmärkte und die Schweiz bringen wird. Axel Lehmann, chairman of the embattled bank, said he was happy about the deal and that it would bring stability and security to its clients and employees. But with UBS expected to make tens of thousands of layoffs at Credit Suisse, bankers will still be feeling anxious. So too are investors elsewhere. As part of the deal, $17 billion worth of Credit Suisse's convertible bonds were written off entirely, or bailed in. In recent days, other bank bonds have fallen, as people have realized that their value, too, could be taken to zero in a crisis. New efforts to restore confidence in the troubled banking sector, all in the wake of the collapse Silicon of Silicon Valley Bank, and it is one of the tech industry's largest lenders, also lends to individuals across the country. It was a weekend that reminded a lot of folks of the troubling times, the tumultuous times of the great financial crisis. Regulators scrambling the shore. It's the second big shock to hit the global banking system in just two weeks after a ferocious run at Silicon Valley Bank on March 9th saw tens of billions of dollars of deposits flee in just 24 hours. SVB, along with two other American lenders, collapsed. And to avoid contagion spreading, the Federal Reserve stepped in to make depositors whole again. Yesterday, the world's financial markets remained largely flat. You might say, all's well that ends well. But more than a decade on from the financial crisis of 2008, the scare has highlighted just how precarious the banking sector may be. So after the global financial crisis, regulators thought a lot about how to rescue banks that fail, but whose failure posed a threat to the financial system or to the global economy. Henry Kerr is our economics editor. And the idea here was to try and make things safe and pre-planned to avoid these sort of ad hoc rescues of banks over the weekend and also to avoid the need for takeovers if there wasn't a bigger bank 
willing to swallow the smaller bank that was failing because according to the plans that were written in advance, banks were supposed to be able to, over a weekend, write down their convertible bonds, recapitalize themselves that way, and then be healthy to start the following week. But instead what's happened is that on both sides of the Atlantic, this regime hasn't worked as intended. So why hasn't it worked? It didn't work with SVB and Signature Bank because those banks in the US were sufficiently small to have been exempted from the strictest regime for planning for their own failure in this way. So they simply weren't covered. And yet it turned out that they were too big to fail in the sense that regulators weren't willing to let their deposits get tied up. In the case of Credit Suisse, it's failed in that it seems like regulators rejected the clean bail-in solution, the pre-planned solution for resolving Credit Suisse, and have instead insisted on a takeover. Now, because they've written down those convertible bonds, they've sort of meshed messily the old way of doing things, which is trying to find someone to take over the bank, and the new way of doing things, which is that you recapitalize the bank by writing down the bonds. And it's resulted in this weird outcome, whereby despite the fact that the bonds have been taken to zero, the shareholders of Credit Suisse are still getting something. They're getting this payment. It's small, but they are getting something. And that's unusual because it seems to have inverted the usual way you think about the capital structure of a bank. Usually people think of this waterfall where all the bondholders get paid before equity gets anything. But the convertible bondholders here have been wiped out while the shareholders still got something. And that's a little odd. And so there's a bit of chaos and uncertainty in the banking sector. What effect is all of this having outside that sector? Essentially, what's happened is exactly what regulators after the global financial crisis were trying to avoid when they wrote rules that were intended to make everything very orderly in this situation. We've got ad hoc rescues and a lot of uncertainty about banks' health and about how they will be treated by regulators should they fail. And that uncertainty and the worries about the banking system are clearly tightening financial conditions around the world. So credit spreads are up, market-based inflation expectations are down. And now we also see this big repricing in the bonds of other banks that might be subject to bail-ins. And that tightening in financial conditions is going to squeeze the real economy. And there are lots of linkages between the banks that are under threat, particularly in the US, and the real economy. One is that about 70% of commercial real estate loans are made by the small, medium and large banks, you know, the non-massive banks, if you will, everything under about $250 billion. And so it's put central banks in a position where now they have to think when they're setting interest rates, do we want to keep on turning the screw here and further tighten global financial conditions, given what's happened? Or do we want to ease off on account of the fact that there's uh, worry and uncertainty about the global banking system? And that's a hard judgment because judging the links between the financial sector and the real economy is something that's quite hard to do in real time. It's hard to calibrate precisely. And yet central banks need to calibrate precisely because they have inflation that's too high and they're trying to get inflation down to their target of 2%. So this slightly messy world in which we've landed with respect to banking and finance has created problems for the other thing central banks are trying to do right now, which is get inflation down without hurting economic growth too badly. So do you think these central banks should have acted differently? Well, with respect to the Fed and what it's done since the banking crisis started, I think the moment at which it could have acted differently, or indeed policymakers more broadly, because this also includes Congress, was prior to the crisis, because it's clear now 
that banks of the size of SVB and Signature Bank should not have been exempt from the resolution planning and should not have been exempt from some of the mark-to-market rules for their securities portfolios. And that's a failure both of the Dodd-Frank regime, the regulatory regime after the financial crisis as it was set up at the time, and also some of the deregulation that happened in 2018 and 2019. But then once you got to the point where these banks failed, the Fed is in a position where it doesn't want to let deposits of that magnitude get frozen. The uninsured deposits at SVB were about $150 billion. And the judgment is that's too much. And I think that it's harder to stand here and say that you should let those deposits fail than it is to say they should have made the banks safer in the first place to begin with so that you weren't in a position where you were having to make that judgment. In the Swiss case, the trouble with what they've done is that by relying still on a takeover and by having this messy solution, you haven't properly tested whether a big bank can be resolved without an even bigger one to swallow it. And so that leaves all these lasting questions. You know, what would the regulator do if UBS subsequently came under stress? Who's going to buy UBS? Maybe no one. Maybe then you have to follow the rule book. And does it work? We still haven't tested that. So the ideal, I think, would have been to try bailing Credit Suisse under the framework that had been set up in the 2010s, but the takeovers happened instead. So what do regulators need to do now? Well, as with every crisis, you can see the holes in the system much more clearly after the event than before the fact. And in the US case, that means that some of the exemptions that apply to these smaller banks shouldn't be there. The rescue of their depositors show that in the event that they have these ad hoc rescues written for them. And the Fed's emergency lending programs have bought it about a year in which it can sort out the problems in small and medium-sized banks. And I think basically that they need more capital so that they are safer and then they need to be subject to the stricter regime, just like the big banks. In Europe and more broadly, there's this sort of existential question for regulators, which is, does this bail-in regime work or is it still the case that we need to make policy on the fly over a weekend like the weekend just gone? And that's a somewhat harder question to answer. And if it turns out that no one really thinks you can bail in a bank, that it always needs rescuing either by another bank or by the government, then I think ultimately where that lands you is also bigger safety buffers because that means that you really, really don't want to ever get to a situation where you have to make those sorts of choices, which means banks need more capital than we thought. What would the politics of that kind of requirement look like? I mean, presumably banks and bankers will object to being told to raise more capital. Yes, you end up back in the age-old battle between bankers and politicians who are trying to regulate them. Bankers saying that the regulations are going to be bad for the economy. The people who are trying to regulate them saying that they're necessary for safety. The pendulum goes back and forth on that throughout history. But we are at a moment where we've had a crisis and at which more regulations and capital requirements do tend to be imposed. So I would have thought the pendulum would swing a little bit back in that direction. There's also quite a profound point here, which is that banking... It enables this magic whereby everyone has money that they can access at will, but lots of people have long-term mortgages with fixed interest rates and the government can issue long-term debt and lots of people have these illiquid things on the other side of their balance sheet. And that is a magic enabled by the banking sector. And to the extent that you uh, regulate or capitalise that away, some people argue it's bad for society, so maybe we shouldn't be so averse to the idea that there are some subsidies implicit in the system. And I think ultimately that more profound debate is where we are headed as regulators step back and survey the landscape here. All right, Henry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, John. 
To hear more on how this latest banking crisis is affecting the global economy, tune in to The Economist's Money Talks podcast this Thursday. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hitler had said, today Germany, tomorrow the world. And this was tomorrow. In the Great Patriotic War, World War II as we call it, the Soviet Union suffered simply horrendous losses of personnel and of tanks. David Hambling writes about science and technology for The Economist. They started off the war with something like 23,000 tanks. But during the course of the war, they lost 80,000 tanks, more than 60 a day. And the reason why they were able to keep fighting was simply because they were able to convert their entire industrial capacity to war production. More guns, more tanks, cries the Red Army. And the factories answer with more guns, more tanks. These workers don't stop even for air raid alarms. Every minute counts. They were turning out over a thousand tanks a month. So despite the incredible levels of losses, they actually ended the war with more tanks than they started. The Soviet Union kept on producing tanks at a high rate after World War II and built several new generations of tanks during the Cold War. In this Russian war economy, the welfare of the people is of scant importance, so long as the tanks roll off the production lines at wartime speed. Those days are long gone. Russia's armed forces are now facing a drastically different reality in Ukraine. At the start of the war, Russia had something like 2,000 T-72 tanks, which were the backbone of its tank fleet. According to the International Institute of Strategic Studies, about half of those have now been destroyed. So they've taken massive losses already. In Kiev, we've seen dozens of Russian tank carcasses put on display for people to take selfies with. It's a display intended to humiliate. If the Soviet army could replenish 80,000 destroyed tanks, then shouldn't replacing a couple of thousand today be relatively easy? Well, tanks these days are very different from tanks in the 1940s, just as cars are. The modern car has a lot of electronics in it, and that's a lot of the complexity of making it. And the same applies for tanks, only even more so. They are high-performance vehicles. They need a lot more precision manufacturing. It's not just a matter of turning out heavy metal anymore, and production is at a very much lower rate. In addition, Russia also has a shortage of critical parts, in particular semiconductors, because Russia relies very heavily on imported processes. There have even been claims that Russia is importing dishwashers and fridges and using the chips from those in military hardware. But that isn't even their biggest problem. What is their biggest problem right now? Well, 
Very few people make tanks these days. And in Russia, there is only actually one tank factory, which is the Ural Wagon Zavod, or Ural Railway Wagon Plant, which is this vast complex which was built in the 1930s. They did a tremendous job during World War II. They were showered with awards then, but they've really declined since their glory days. They've had disastrous financial mismanagement, and the attempts at modernization seem to have been completely derailed. The workers there joke that they are making their tanks by hand, and that's not that far from the truth. They haven't got a lot of high-tech manufacturing gear they're working. So their production is at a rate of something like 20 tanks a month, but that may actually be an overstatement. What does that ultimately mean for Russia on the battlefield? Offensive warfare requires large numbers of tanks. Russia wasn't able to capitalize on the number of tanks they had at the start of the war, and they desperately need to replenish their tank fleet if they're going to undertake any kind of serious offensive operations. If they can't manufacture enough tanks to meet their needs, they do have an alternative, though. They can refurbish and rebuild their old tanks that they have in storage. Will that work, do you think? Are there enough old tanks? Well, Other nations have scrapped all their old vehicles. Russia never throws anything away. So they've kept old T-90s, T-80s, T-72s, even T-62s dating back right to the early 1960s and possibly even some even older T-55s. So they have these vast tank boneyards with something in excess of 10,000 vehicles in them. Russia's long had what they call armoured vehicle repair plants, BTRZs, which have been taking these old vehicles and refurbishing them, fitting them with new engines and new electronics and updating them to modern standards. Because of the situation with the war, they're simply not being able to keep up the quality of production. So the modernised old tanks are supposed to have all new equipment. But what we're seeing on the front lines now are these weird hybrids that no one knows quite what to call them in terms of model because they've got a mixture of old kit from several different versions out there. And in some cases, they're missing some of the more modern equipment like thermal imaging sites. At the moment, there are three of these plants that are refurbishing tanks and they're producing about 20 a month. And there's two more that are being set up in the light of the Ukrainian war. So that should give them Something like 100 tanks a month extra, which is a massive improvement over just the 20 that Ural Vagonsevod is able to manufacture new builds. Ultimately, however, it's quite doubtful that they are going to be able to keep up anything like with World War II. Tanks are being destroyed far faster than they can make or refurbish them. So we're likely to see a steady decline in the number of Russian tanks out there. And also we're going to see more and more older models on the front line. So the quality will decline as well. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And replenishing tanks isn't the only problem Russia faces. Our new podcast, Next Year in Moscow, talks to Russians who have fled their country and are trying to change its direction from the outside. It's not exactly the most pleasant of noises. And the French bulldog, that's what you're listening to, isn't the most attractive of animals. It has short legs, a scrunched up face, and round ears that stick out like a bat's. 
But these compact pets have become a hit with celebrities. Reese Witherspoon, Martha Stewart, Hugh Jackman, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson are all owners. Lady Gaga has three. And they're pretty popular with non-celebrities, too. French Bulldogs are the most registered dog with the American Kennel Club. Dolly Seton is a data journalist for The Economist. They displaced Labrador Retrievers, who held that title for the past 31 years. They've become the second most popular breed in Britain. And just 12 years ago, they were number 22. They spiked in South Africa as well. They're now number one there. So it's not everywhere, but it's significantly widespread, particularly in English language countries. Why are they so popular? It's partly because of their small size. So they're great for apartment living. In Japan, that makes a big difference. For example, they tend to like small dogs. They're also supposedly very friendly towards humans and dogs, although that's not really especially unique. Many other breeds are equally or more friendly. Plus, it really depends on the particular dog. There's a lot of variation. And Frenchies actually even seem less friendly to other dogs than the average dog, according to a recent study. What's a bit strange about their popularity is how odd-looking they are. 19th century Parisian author Colette said that hers looked like a frog that had been sat upon. And they have these stocky frames, bad ears, squished, wrinkly noses. But this is a look that's been increasingly bred over the years. And actually, the Japanese call it ugly cute. But there are also some well-known concerns about French bulldogs, right, Dolly? Yes, the look may be cute, but it can be life-threatening. The shape of their face frequently causes breathing problems. The dog's wrinkly folds can cause skin affections. They're, they frequently have eye problems and, you know, various other issues. Frenchies actually have the shortest life expectancy, according to a British study recently done of 18 breeds that are kept as pets. And vets in New Zealand even say they're too compromised to continue breeding. But even so, their popularity keeps rising. Why is that? Celebrity endorsements, posting selfies with our pets seem to be playing a role in making Frenchies sort of the go-to breed now. It's part of this larger trend of popular culture affecting dog ownership. We found that positive starting roles in movies would boost the popularity of a particular breed as much as 176% two years later. One example is the American demand for Dalmatians surged in the 1960s when Disney released 101 Dalmatians and its re-releases. We suspect that social media is taking up that role now. Seeing which dog celebrities choose and post about frequently seems to do wonders for that breed. And there are also all sorts of blogs, supposedly by dogs. So altogether, hashtag French Bulldog has 37.4 million results, which is more than any of the other top American breeds. Do you think this popularity is likely to continue? You know, I think that the Frenchie frenzy may soon fizzle out. Popularity has already waned in New Zealand and France. This is likely because of the medical problems that come with big vet bills. But the more popular the purebred puppies get, the more expensive. In New Zealand, they cost now between $5,000 and $8,000, depending on various factors and where. And there's also been a lot of press in New Zealand that focuses on their genetic defects and some of the suffering that these dogs have to endure. So it's likely that some other dog could be another celebrity or, or movie favorite will soon snag the top spot. And I actually wouldn't be surprised if Labrador Retrievers were back on top in 2023. 
The French Bulldog was number one in Britain in 2019, and then the following year, labs were back on top. Dolly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.